Take your Bibles tonight to the book of 1 Kings. I'll have you stand in just a moment. This will be a launching point for us as we um, look at the thought of purposeful parenting, intentional parenting once again. Let me tell you a format that I, I'm kind of intending in this. I'm trying not to do too much too fast. I have done this before in four sessions. I will probably take more than that over the next few weeks. And uh, what I want to do is kind of work up to a section, let you think about that, come back to it again, start on that section we ended on, and then go forward again, and, and give us you know, maybe a week of time in between each one to think about a principle before we actually mechanically address that thought. And so that, that's what we're going to work towards again tonight. And so starting with a thought we concluded with last week. So go ahead and stand with me. And I'm going to start with the story I'm going to end with tonight. Or at least the example of something I'm going to end with tonight. Here we are at the latter end of David's life. King David was a great king. He was a, a man after God's own heart. There were so many wonderful things about David. But in David's life, there was a characteristic that often caused him harm, and that sometimes he allowed his flesh to get away from him. Um, in some ways, he was indulgent. And probably the most expressive way in which he was indulgent was with his children. And while David was a great king, he, he wasn't necessarily a good father. And of course, we see that played out in the lives of his sons. One son in particular, Adonijah, um, struggled with an indulgent nature, and that cost him his life in time. First Kings chapter 1, verse 1, And King David was old and stricken in years, and he got no heat. And they, uh, let me sorry, and they covered him with clothes, and he got no heat. Wherefore his servants said unto him, Let there be sought for my lord, the king, a young virgin, and let her stand before the king, and let her cherish him, and let her lie in thy bosom, that the Lord, the king, may get heat. So they sought for a fair damsel throughout all the coast of Israel. And Abishag, the Shumanite, was brought into the king, and the damsel was very fair, and cherished the king, and ministered to him. But the king knew her not. So this, the text saying this is something innocent. She, he, the king literally needed the body heat that she provided. And then verse 5. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, this is a son of David, exalted himself, saying, this is not his place to say this, I will be king. And he prepared him chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. He, he is being incredibly presumptuous, uh, super arrogant. He is being indulgent. But, verse 6, and his father had not displeased him at any time saying, okay, just stop. You hear what's being said? Here's a young man acting out. He, he's doing something entirely inappropriate. He's, he's, he's being precocious. He's, he's, he's being indulgent. Um, he's getting to a place where he shouldn't be, but there's no correction from the father. At no time did the king say, no. That, that's not proper. You should. There was no pulling back. There was no ropes of restraint. There was no correction. The young man just did as he pleased. So again, verse 6, and his father had not displeased him at any time. The thought here is even going back to his youth, 
This is why Adonijah is what he's doing now, because he wasn't corrected as a child in saying, why hast thou done so? And he was also a very goodly man. His mother bare him after Absalom. And by the way, Absalom wasn't any better. Two sons um, indulged by their father whose lives ended in death specifically because of the indulgence. Our Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for the night. I pray the next few moments as we look into your word. Lord, examine these principles, Lord, of what it means to train up a child in the way that he should go. That, Lord, we'd find help, we'd find, Lord, information, but also resolve, Lord, um, a strengthening of our spirit to the task that many here are called to. And, and that is not just teaching children, but, Lord, a much more difficult effort training children in the way that they should go. And so I, I pray that those of us who maybe are past that point would lend help and encouragement, Lord, instruction. And so, Lord, I think there's a place for all of us tonight to receive instruction. So I ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for standing. You can be seated, of course. Last week, we began discussing the importance of being purposeful or being intentional, of entering into this duty of raising children for the next generation in a manner that is not passive or haphazard or just kind of doing the best we can with what we know, but rather defining an objective and, and saying, I, I want my child one day to stand, be willing to stand up on a platform and, and sing, you know, these songs. I, I want my child one day to have a, a strong work ethic. I want my child one day to, to love people and express that in, in these ways. I, I want my child to grow up and, and be able to be you know, deferential and, and, and exhibit these behaviors. I mean, not just say we want good kids, but letting definition to that. And then to begin to think what steps we must take to get our child to that objective. That is purposeful, intentional parenting. And I suggested that a starting place was uh, looking in the mirror and examining the nature of our own discipline and our own character before we began to impose that on another life. In other words, are we disciplined? Because if we are not disciplined, if we do not have the character that we want our child to have, well, then we need to back up a step and address that. It is incredibly difficult, if not impossible, minus the grace of God, for us to pass on to others what we ourselves do not possess. Undisciplined and unruly children are a reflection of a lack of discipline and resolve on the part of the parent. Now, I don't say that to be condemning or unkind. I say that in, in, in maybe like the way a doctor would, of diagnosis. You know, we, we, we might look at a child who's running loose and, you know, running all over the place. And, you know, we're trying to think what's happening, what's happening. And, and why can't I get this child under control? And again, I want to get ahead of myself. But the answer to that in great measure is that you're not in control. You don't have discipline. You don't have the resolve to address the, the situation with authority and, and conviction to make that behavior stop and to train them, not just teach them something different. And so that's the starting place. To address their behavior, the starting place is in addressing your own, in our own hearts. 
most of us will pass on to our children a version of who we are. Now, you know, we would all say, well, man, I want to do better than that. I mean, that's, that's how I, I might feel. But that's maybe some false humility. If you can't, forgive the high-pitched voice. <clears throat> if you can't ask your children to emulate you, there's a problem. All the more reason you got to back up and address you. All the false humility you want, but your children are supposed to follow your lead. That's incredibly important. They're to pass, or you are to pass on through intentional instruction, discipline training, an example of what you want them uh, to be. There is a verse that um, the Lord brought my attention to years ago. I've rehearsed it here many times. It's somewhat, I have a list of life verses. This would be among them. In Proverbs chapter 23, verses 26, primarily in 27, the psalmist, a dad, addressing his son, in this case, any parent to a child, a dad to a son or a daughter, a mom to a son or daughter, says this. My son, give me thine heart. Just stop right there. What's the man asking for? He's asking the son to allow the father to be the chief influence in his life. You follow me? Hey, bud, I want you to look at me for life instruction. I want to have your heart. I want us to have a good relationship. Um, I, I want you to allow me above peers, above culture, above TVs, above anything else, above media and social media. I want you, my son, you, I want you to give me your heart. And by the way, I'm not just asking for that, but I want your eyes to fall upon me. My son observed my ways. The man is saying this, I want to be the chief influence in your life and I want you to become who I am. I want you to love your future wife the way I love your present mother. I want you to go to church the way that I go to church. I want you to give to the Lord the way I give to the Lord. I want you to serve the way I serve. I want you to be honest and have integrity and have the character and the conduct that I do. I want you with great scrutiny to look into my life and I want you to emulate my language, my character, and my conduct. Okay, with that said, Lord help us. But if you can't ask that of your child, then you have to go home and get on your knees and say, Lord, help me. Now, granted, all of us are going to be mistake-filled. I can't tell you, and I mean that honestly, how many times I failed in that example, one, one to be, but I can say this, uh, with, almost always I think I would go back to kids and say, I blew it, would you forgive me? Because that too is an example. And, and kids can live with a lot of mistakes if there's some authenticity and uh, forgiveness involved. And so this is what we're after, becoming that kind of person. I've often said this, the hope of the future are not the present children, but rather those who are teaching and training them. For if those people are flawed, the future generation will be as well. Galatians 6, 7 says this, be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, whatever a parent soweth, whatever two individuals ready to try soweth, that shall they also 
What's the next word? They'll reap. That's sobering, but it's true. And if you want to be a parent, this is the starting place. If we do anything else, this is the starting place. Now tonight, I, I want to move beyond that a little and begin to work our way to some more mechanical and principled thoughts and start addressing the topic that we find in Proverbs 22.6, the subject of training. Um, there are mantras, and I use that word because I don't know what else to call them, principles, precepts um, that have helped guide me in my life. And, and this is one again, um, in 20-something years I've rehearsed from the pulpit, and it goes like this. Every product has a process. Okay, I thought more people knew that than that, but anyway, or maybe just being timid and shy. Every product has a process. In front of me is a lectern, it's made of wood, it has some glass. Once upon a time, it was a tree in the woods. It was cut down. It was hewn in a mill. It was taken to um, someone who understood, um, you know, how to work with wood. It was cut to shape. It was formed as fashion. It was nailed, stapled, whatever else. The glass was put in place by some kind of artisan, company, whatever else. It's a product. And to get this product, there was a very specific process that was involved. If you interfere and or you change the process, would it not be fair to assume that you change the product as well? Okay, that, that's the way it works. Now, not only is that true in tangible items like lecterns or pulpits, it's also true in relationships. So I could ask Terry to come here and hold my hand, and we could stand in front of you, and I could say this. Every product has a process. And, and you could save our marriage whatever you want, and, and, and I'm sure lots of things would be fair, but it is a product, and behind it is a process. We spent... 35 years together pretty soon. And, you know, we have, we have practices, processes behind us that produce whatever we are, good or bad. And, 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 and that would be true of every marriage, every institution. It's true of Eastland Baptist Church. This, we could say, oh, here's an institution. Well, why is Eastland the way it is? Well, we're not just lucky. We're not just fortunate. We are recipients of grace. But the church is what it is because every product has a process. And here's the thing, when it's intentionally a process, well, you can get the product that you want. And the great news about that mantra is this, is that today in a relationship or a product or anything else, you're not happy with the product. Here's the hopeful thought. All you have to do is tweak the process. See, a marriage can be better, change the process. A child can be changed in character, change the process. A church can become something more than it is if you change the process. So the, the, the idea is identify the processes that need to be altered and then address that. You know, I, I recite this often in, in kind of a, a more scientific way that goes like this. Our systems of behavior are perfectly designed to produce the results we're getting. And so you, you see some product, some outcome, some outworking of a child. And it sounds judgmental and it's not meant to be, but you can look on that scene, whatever's happening there, and say, well, the system be, our system behavior are perfectly designed to produce that product. And that, that ownership of understanding that, again, is another starting place. Because until we're willing to own that, we're going to blame the child. We're going to blame the culture. We're going to blame a thousand things. But if we can work on the process, the system behavior, then we can get where we want to go. If we don't like what we have, then we can change the process, we can change the behaviors. In the Bible, the scriptures tell us that 
you know, to get to the place of a godly child, well, that involves, and I'll use this word again tonight, training, train up a child in the way that he should go. The way that he should go is the outcome that is a product, and training is the process or the system of behavior that get us to that place. Now, I want us to think tonight hard about this word, training. The word train in the Hebrew here means to teach and to guide. Now, those aren't necessarily the same thing. To teach and to guide. Guiding. Um, teaching is saying something, but guiding is the process of helping the thing get there. Um, all over Oklahoma, you, you see trees, and they're planted when they're, when they're new. And, um, you know, we have these winds all the time in Oklahoma. And so what people do to help those trees go straight is they train them. Okay, and by train them, I mean they restrain them. They put ropes around them. They stick them to the ground, and they put ropes. And they don't just say, tree grow straight. Now, you can do that. And I'm not being silly, but I'm, I'm pressing a point. Tree grow straight. Child sit down. Child do this. Teaching and training are not the same thing. See, lots and lots of parents teach children in the way they should go. And that's important. Be a godly young man. Do this, do this. They teach a lot of things. What's missing in the parenting is the training. It's the restraints on the child. It's the restraints on the tree. It's that which holds them in place until they have the ability to resolve the strength to do it on their own. And so the tree... It's not just grow straight tree, but these ropes of guidance are put there until the tree is mature enough in terms of roots in the ground that it can do that, what they have been asked to do, grow straight on its own. So it's teaching and training. It's molding, lending shape to lead or to guide. Again, teaching and training are not necessarily the same thing. I'm going to assume everyone here is teaching, which I, I hope that would be true. Giving instruction in the way a child to go. But training is more than that. It is the holding the child accountable for the instruction. By drill and practice. Sit down is instruction. Then enforcing that is training. And, and, and that is what, that's not all about spanking. It's about sitting there with the child, sometimes holding their hand, and guiding through the process of learning to sit for 5 and then 10 and then 15 and 20 minutes. So when they come to church, they can do that. Like, that's training. And I, I'm gonna, that's a whole other session coming next. But that's the idea. We just say lots of things. People, parents speak a lot of verbiage. It's the follow-through that's lacking. One thing I'll say later is stop saying so much and start doing more with what you say. It's the follow through. The difference in saying to a child, sit down, and then being able to do it is not the lack of instruction, it's the lack of training. So tonight I want to give you some truths about training and some things to think about. I'm just trying to create an awareness uh, that this is occurring and not always intentionally. Training is something that you do with your child all the time. It can be intentional or it can be a result of a lack of intentionality, but you're, you're doing it. Um, it, it. In a way, it's the same thing true to church. I, you know, uh, forgive me, 
We train. We train you to be on time. We train that we're going to start at 6. We're going to train that choir is going to do this. You get the idea. We're setting an expectation and, and we're following through. We're training by all that we say and do. Training is something we do all the time. Whether intentionally or not, I don't know, but you are spending time training with all of our interactions. Um, and, and, and again, if you are not training your child intentionally, you'll be training them passively and a lot of times negatively, or they could be training you. I want you to think about this, and I'm going to press some points a little too far, but I'm making a point. Think about all the reasons a baby might cry. And there are really uh, explanatory reasons why a child may cry. They're hungry. They have a messy diaper. They have a tummy ache. Lots of good reasons why a baby might cry. But sometimes they're crying to train you. Come pick me up. Come pick me up when I want you to. Come pick me up right now. I don't like being alone. I don't like the dark. Well, you know, and I'm not trying to justify. I'm simply saying you have to understand what's happening. So every time a mother jumps out of bed to pick up a crying child, you may be thinking you're being a good parent. And okay, I'm not going to argue with you one way or the other. I'm going to say you are being trained. They are more conditioning you than you are conditioning them. And I'm going to get to a point in many say, well, they'll grow out of that. Well, I would disagree with you. A child is going to ask for something over and over and over again. Because what they learn is this, if they ask enough, they can train you to comply. Especially if they do it at Walmart or in front of people. Because then they know you're embarrassed and that's in play and now I get what I want. They may not be doing this with you know, the great wisdom that we may understand, but make no mistake about it. You're being trained. You train all the time or you're being trained. Every interaction, social expectation you have with your child, every interaction involves training. The time they get up, the time they go to bed, what do they do after they wake up? Do they make their bed? Do they not make up the bed? they pick up their toys? Do they not? Um, are you required to, to do this or, or whatever? Do you speak a certain way? Are you allowed to, to yell or to get your way? Do you comb your hair? Do you brush your teeth? The way that you expect all of those things is training. You may be saying things, but you may not be training in any of this in an intentional way because there's no follow through. But all the interactions, everything that you have, make no mistake, at the end of the day, lots of training has transpired. The question is not if a parent will train. The question is, how are they doing it? And how intentional is it? When you allow a child to ask for something twice, they are being trained. If you do it once and then expect them to comply, they're also being trained. And I'm going to say their ability to comply um, exceeds your resolve often. When we request things or they request things dozens of times, then they're being, there's conditioning here. Um, they respond to your expectations, what you allow. I mean, you, I just want you to get it. What's, what's happening here is training. Can I have it? Can I have it? Can I have it? I don't want to. I don't want to. I want to. And then your response and all that. You know, it could be there, hey, hey, please sit down and then follow through. Or it could be, please sit down, please sit down, please sit down. And they're going to respond to the training that you're giving. It's really all about expectations.
The difficulty and frustration that many parents experience with their children is due to poor training and not bad kids in what you allow or tolerate in failing to address. Children can almost always accommodate reasonable expectations. I, okay, you know, again, I, press, I don't mean to be crude, but I can teach a dog to do things. And I don't have to be mean and cruel to do it. I can make my dog sit. This quieting silence. I'm not kidding. I can make my dog sit. I can ask my dog to come and he'll do that. And I understand it's more complicated. Children by nature will always do what you allow them to do. Now I'm going to get I'm going to stop here and I want to get ahead of myself on a subject I'll get to in a week or two. Because this is, this is important in understanding the idea of training. No amount of chastisement. Okay, now, I'm going to broaden that. I primarily mean by that spanking. No amount of chastisement, or if you want to employ another system in place of biblical spanking, no amount of chastisement will ever, ever, ever make up for your lack of training. It just can't be done. No, no amount of chastisement will ever make up for a lack of training. It just doesn't happen. Follow through on your part is what I'm talking about. So let's take a moment tonight and begin to understand the importance of training and, and really why we have to do this and why this is such a big deal and, and um, you know, why... Why training? Okay, now this is, this is basic theology 101, and I'm going to apply it to your kids. Number one, children are sinners. They're born and bent with a will or a lack of a will to do that which is right. Um, the Bible says that for all have, next word, that means they're self-willed, they're selfish, I'll use the word over and over, they are indulgent. They're inclined to do that which pleases the flesh, then that which is good, then that which is right, that which is accommodating to other people. For all have sinned, and that means your child is a sinner. And by the way, Psalm 58.3 says they're born that way speaking lies. That's, that's, a, that's a pretty dramatic statement. Children are born from the womb speaking lies. Again, not every time they are crying are they being honest. Not every time do they complain from one to two is it is a legitimate complaint. They're, they're born speaking lies. They're estranged from the womb. Psalm 51.5 says that they are shaped in iniquity. And that has to be addressed and dealt with in their lives. The second thing is this, children are foolish. Um, Proverbs 22:15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Now, by foolishness, I mean this: they don't know God's ways yet. 
They're not following God's ways. They're, they're being a fool. And that foolishness needs to be addressed. And just do a quick uh, uh, search in the, in the Proverbs on fool and what we do for fools. And you get a lot of instruction on what you do for a child. And I'm going to get there in time. The Bible says that children left to themselves, foolish and sinful nature, will bring their parents shame. Proverbs 29, 15. So what is the outworking of a foolish nature, a sinful nature? Well, if it's left unchecked, unrestrained, without guidance and training, then they will always result in a shameful behavior. Whether that's being unruly here or being locked up in jail one day. Or the Walmart wars, it, it, it's going to bring a kind of, of shame. The idea here is that minus intervention on the parents' part, minus discipline and training, shameful conduct will result. And that's true in all of our lives. We've all been embarrassed. We understand how this works, and some to a greater degree than others. It's going to happen, but how often it happens is really up to you. You can't escape it, but you don't have to be presented with it every single day. Now, there's a root here, a word that I've already used that helps me understand what's happening in, in, in children. A way of understanding what I'm addressing in my child, specifically, that has guided some of my parenting strategy. The root of much of sinful behavior is found in our nature of being indulgent. Okay? Such a helpful way to think about it. The expression of all my sinful behavior, behavior mean, unkind, words I shouldn't have say, said, um, overeating, whatever, the fruit of all that traces back to the root of, of indulgence of wanting what I want, when I want it, how I want it, and that's right now. Of that unrestrained, selfish nature. It is desiring something that is enjoyable, that is pleasurable in the moment. And often to the extent it's not good for me. I want a cookie. I want another cookie. I want another cookie. Okay? And not having the restraint to say, stop. There's a thought here. It's press, but again, there's an idea. Children are not necessarily born with a bent to be evil or to do evil. But they become those things because of a lack of restraint and indulgence. They, they take a, a little hammer or whatever from, from a playmate and bonk them on the head because they're not trying to you know, hurt the kid. They just want the hammer. This is a good way to get it. They fuss and fight and yell and scream, not with the intent of being evil. They're just expressing their selfish indulgence. You follow me on this? That's what's, that's what's at play here. They're just being indulgent. They're expressing selfish desire. Children like us do things they shouldn't, not to be evil, but because of an indulgent nature that seeks pleasure, gratification, or the, or the freedom from pain or difficulty. And so indulgence has different forms. There's active indulgence, seeking pleasure, and there's passive indulgence, uh, resisting pain. Active indulgence is eating and eating more. I have one plate, it's enough, it meets my nutritional needs, I eat more. I engage in a sinful activity because it's pleasurable. Pa active, passive indulgence. Uh, that looks like hard work, I think I'll skip it. This requires my involvement. I don't want to do it. I'm out. Both of those are rooted in the same thing and indulgent nature. 
pleasure and the freedom from any pain or difficulty. You see, the undisciplined mind and character will always drift to one end, indulgence, self-gratification. That's why a child's first word is always no. Now, I wish it was dad, but you know, it's usually no. Or I don't want to in time. Um, or I want this. Those, those words are said over and over and over and over and over by children. No, I don't want to, I want to. Why? They're indulgent and they're seeking their self-gratification. So I can stop here again with the moment of self-reflection and say before we wrestle with how hard this is for a child, we need to wrestle with how difficult there is for us. Okay. Um, why do we say things we shouldn't say in a fight or an argument or anywhere else? It's not necessarily to prove this, that you're right. You may or may not be. You do it because you're indulgent. It's pleasurable in the moment, it's self-gratifying, so you say it. You're not always guided by logic and reason or kindness and goodness. You're being indulgent. Overeating, entertainment, games. We don't always indulge in those things. We don't maybe watch TV all night long because it's good for us. I'm not against it. I'm just trying to tell you the root of it. Why do you do it? Well, you like it. And not all liking is evil. But if you're not careful, it's going to pass over to an indulgence. And then it can be harmful to you. It's why people don't come to church all the time. I don't want to. Now, we rationalize it. Well, we this and this. And, and you know, I'm here to argue your points. But I bet you I can trace a whole lot of it. You just don't want to. You want to do something else different. You want to do something that's more pleasurable than coming to church. And I can't imagine what that might be. But anyway, you get the idea. And so we justify things like this. And I just, I just want you to be fair and trace back a child's behavior and much of our own to this indulgent nature. Because that, is, that governs so much of our lives. Often indulgent trumps right and wrong, good or bad, reason and logic. The point is this indulgent nature in our children has to be addressed because this is what they're born with. It has to be addressed. But there's a problem all the way around. Our children are acting in an indulgent way. They're doing all they want to. And that is met with the indulgent nature of the, child, of the parent saying, man, I don't want to inconvenience myself. I don't want to get up. I don't want to spank them again. I don't want to hold them accountable. I have, like, they don't want to give attention that is required to the child to do what they're asking the child to do. So indulgence is running everything. It's running the whole program. Child and parent. They're not self-disciplined and the parent's not self-disciplined and that's a really bad mix. So it has to at least start with the parent saying, I'm indulgent. I, I, this, this is difficult for me. This is hard. This is a lot of work. It's going to inconvenience me. Man, I got to fall through every time I say something. So when the parent can stop being indulgent, they can begin to address the indulgence of the child. You with me? And by the way, you never get there. You just work on it all the time. Hundreds of times. Hey, Terry, we got to gather the ropes. We, 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 gotta, we gotta start again. We have to, we have to you know, get, you, you don't ever just get there. You grow, character strengthens, but it's work and it's work all the time, the way everything else is. 
helping our children de develop self-control, overcoming self-gratification, or at least a gratification orientation is much of what is required in the art of parenting, teaching our child to be restrained. I want you to take your Bibles and turn, if you would, to um, 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 3. Let's go to 1 Samuel 2 instead, in verse 12. 1 Samuel 2, verse 12. I'm going to give you another biblical example besides David. And I'm going to read something to you. I'll be about five, ten more minutes, so hang with me. We'll get out just a little bit after time, but I'm close. 1 Samuel chapter 2 records for us the story of another leader whose name was Eli. And Eli was a priest, and he had sons, a good man, a godly man, bad dad, indulgent. Dad was indulgent. Kids were indulgent because dad was indulgent. Verse 12, now the sons of Eli were the sons of Belial. <laughs> That's the sons of the devil. They knew not the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when many of the men offered sacrifice, the priest's servant came, and while the priest's flesh was in seething with a flesh hook of three teeth in his hand, and he struck into it into a pan or a kettle or a cauldron or pot, all the flesh hook brought up to the priest took for he himself. He's, he's taking more meat than he should have. There was a, a portion of, the, of, of offerings that were meant to give the priest, but these guys are being selfish, indulgent. They're taking far more than they were supposed to. And so they did in Shiloh unto all the Israelites that came thither. Also before the burnt offerings, or the burnt the fat, the priest's servants came and said to the man that sacrificed, Give flesh to roast for the priest, for he will not have sodden flesh of thee, but raw. So taking even more. And if any man said to him, Let him not fail to burn the fat presently, and then and take as much as a soul desireth, that he would answer him, Nay, but thou shalt give it to me now. And if not, I will take it by force. A little child saying, Give me what I want, or I'm going to take it from you. Wherefore the sin of the young man was very great before the Lord, for the men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and heard all that his sons did unto Israel. And how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. More indulgent behavior. And he said unto them, here's teaching, why do, why do you such things? For I hear of your evil doings by all this people. Yeah, he's saying what's right, but he's, there's, there's been no training. Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear you make of the Lord's people to transgress. If one man sin um, against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Notwithstanding, they hearkened not into the voice of their father, because the Lord would slay them. Now, Eli fights with this a little bit. Now, verse 29, and God's talking to Eli. Wherefore, kick ye at my sacrifice, at mine offerings, which I have commanded in my habitation, and honorest thy sons above me, to make yourself fat. To be indulgent. You're not willing to overcome your own self-indulgent to stop them from being self-indulgent. And you're doing this in front of all my people. You see, this was a perpetual problem in the Old Testament. And it is a perpetual problem today. 
forgive me, but I'm going to read something that I want you to listen to. And I find it incredibly instructive and helpful. Two-year-old Johnny was sitting in his mother's lap at the kitchen table. He reached for a dish of steamed squash. I don't know why a child would do that, but that's the story. But his mother pulled him back and said no. He twisted his shoulders back and forth as to break her grasp, and then he defiantly slapped the table with the palm of his hand. His face expressed anger. He made grunting noises that were clearly designed to imitate any angry bear. He highly resented his mother limiting his powers of indulgence. He wanted to indulge his sense of touch, smell, taste, and sight, along with the human drive to manipulate his parents. And finally, he wanted to indulge in controlling his environment and all those in it. This mentality of give it to me now has been developed since the day he was born. He now has two years to accept it as a way of life. His parents are wondering if they should start training him to exercise self-control. However, they are two years overdue. Parents are responsible to impart values and self-control to their children, but there's a dilemma. The infant has fully developed fleshly desires and habits of indulgence long before his mental faculties have developed to a level where he can understand the need to exercise self-control for himself. You understand that? Indulgence is fully developed, cognitive ability is not. That's just a child, we call him a baby. This occurs maybe around three or four. His flesh is already well practiced in the dark art of indulgence. His flesh will get a three or four year head start on his development of his sense of duty. He is born with a wanter but no stopper, with a gas pedal but no brake. At age three or four, he will already be a confirmed pleasure junkie, a do as I please rebel, and a, if, what we would call a spoiled brat. With intemperate habits already well-formed, he is not going to appreciate the call of his newly developed conscience towards self-restraint. Nor will he appreciate anyone else trying to impose limitations on his, on his addiction to indulgence. In the extraordinary ignorance of modern psychology, we are told that a child should be left to his own free expression. That we must be careful not to suppress his personality. What will you do when his free expression become antisocial? When his behavior is disgusting and embarrassing? Will you call it modern art and appreciate it for the original departures from the prudent? To allow free expression is to allow the child the freedom to be in bondage to appetite and his own carnal desire for the rest of his life. We would no more allow a child the freedom to wander and explore the bounds of his drives and passions talking about a child, then we allow him the freedom to wander in traffic. If you lovingly provide everything a child needs but fail to cross his will with enforced boundaries, you will by default produce a self-centered, carnally-minded, emotionally disturbed, and at best an average member of a group hanging out at the mall. Wow. In our present age, a child has no hope unless his parents have the wisdom and courage 
to ignore modern psychology and the low expectations of the church as they trap their child in the way he should go. And I hope that's not true here. Basically, a child needs two things, a stable and secure environment of love and understanding and boundaries consistently enforced by a dignified and loving authority. If the parent's responsibility to cause the child to exercise moderation, it is the parent's responsibility, rather, to cause the child to exercise moderation and restraint. When a child is less than two years old, you cannot expect him to offer any resistance in constraining his appetites and drives. Well, come on, Johnny, don't do that. Seriously? Fully functioning sense of indulgence, not fully a sense of duty, Moral responsibility, obligation, There's, that's coming down the road. It's, it's not developed enough here for that just to happen because you want it to. That requires training, restraint. He will eat everything that tastes good, demand anything that appeals to him, expect to be the center of your attention and others, and is unwilling to wait for any reason. Face the fact, no child is going to develop wholesome self-control naturally, and if you wait for him to get old enough to adopt the relative standards of society, you'll find yourself fighting the battle against a well-entrenched depravity. A small child learns self-control, and this is next week. A small child learns self-control when his will is constrained by an outside force. Who is the outside force? In our case, that outside force is his parents. That's the place to start. Some mechanics involved. Um, to ask people to do something without specific instructions is not fair. And all I can do is provide a model in the coming weeks. But I want us to get the root of the problem. Understand the root of the problem in our children and in ourselves. Because see, we need work here, don't we? And we can't fix, and we can't always impart what we don't have. The equation's bigger. There's a culture that helps in some ways. There's a church, and as kids grow, they, they do form a conscience and some mental ability. But we're talking about little kids. They really, really need your help. They need you to be what they are not, so one day they can be what you are. I'll ask you to stand, if you would, tonight.